going for a hike and I, th- I think we may be lost out here in the Arizona desert. It's late. I'm scared. We only packed enough Swiss cheese sandwiches for an hour and we've been wandering for six. My flight home is probably boarding right now and you are actually need to help me, please. Oh, please listen to this. Thanks, Kyle. I hope you have a ton of fun out in Arizona on your vacation. And thanks for introducing Ashley and our next topic for me. On episode 16 of the Goblin Trash Masters, Ashley and I are going to be talking about onboarding a player that's new to tournament magic into the scene of comp REL events. We're going to cover the basics, like how not to feel totally lost in the desert, what it means to be late to the table, and the Swiss pairing system, and how to help the person in your life who's looking to take that next step forward in their magic experience. I'm Anthony, joined by our very special guest, Ashley. Say hello, Ashley. Uh, I think Kyle's actually in danger. Honestly, I was barely listening. Let's talk some more. Alright. So, first of all, Ashley, thank you for coming on filling in for Kyle this week. I uh, really appreciate it. And it's a uh, perfect timing because we were wanting to talk about somebody who has played magic a lot like you and is interested in kind of breaking into the competitive scene and seeing how that differs from their previous ex- expectations. Also like you. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk about this. It's something I've been interested in for a while. It sounds like a ton of fun um, to kind of change the pace a little bit, play something a little different. Mm -hmm. So I'm excited to go through this. Absolutely. So our goal for this one is going to be really, we're going to be speaking from a perspective of we have somebody that wants to kind of break in. And we want to get them up to speed and get their mistakes and avoidable losses out of the way early. Play skill is a developed skill, but that's not super our focus here today. Our focus here is all of the stuff that falls under the magic tournament rules, right? Like how different it is than just shuffling up and playing, how different comp REL is than regular REL, which you probably which you've experienced at like FNMs and stuff like that before. So whenever somebody is getting into this, they're going to make a lot of mistakes, especially if they're trying to learn magic and tournament magic at the same time. Mistakes are desirable. You want them to hit the roadblocks so they can get com- get to a point where they can be competitive as quickly and as painlessly as possible, because I think uh, magic's a lot more fun when you have a, an actual chance to win. I agree. I hope for that. Yeah. Because my most recent experience with FNM, I did not do very well. Yeah. So we are going to talk through a few questions that in some cases Ashley's had, in some cases I've been asked in other situations about tournament magic, but in almost every single one of them, actually applies to both and that's kind of what had us put together this list of like questions that get asked a lot about somebody that's looking to kind of 
crack into tournament play. So let's jump right in. We got a lot of stuff to cover. We do. Uh, yeah. So Ashley, what's your first new tournament player question? So as we know, I play mostly commander, which is very different because that is just, you know, kitchen table things. So the first things that I think of are generally tournaments have a a format to them as in expectations of how players interact with each other, what the gameplay looks like and things like that. So my first thing that I would think of is like how you how you handle the beginning of a match or end of a match, what that looks like. Oh, super easy. And this is one that I've done thousands of times and you start your match. If you are using like companion app or MTG melee, regardless of what you're using, they're going to tell you who your opponent is and should tell you what table you're sitting at. So in that situation, I go to that table I shake my opponent's hand and then I look at the name of the person I'm supposed to be playing against and confirm that that is the person that's sitting across from me, right? Yeah, that makes sense. And make sure that that's good. And then I sit down, I take out my life pad, my pen, my deck box. I open my deck box opposite my opponent so they're not seeing cards that are in my deck and I shuffle it. I start immediately shuffling my deck. I don't care if your deck was randomized before it went in the box shuffle it in front of them and i like to shuffle it while i'm looking away so that i'm not looking at my opponent's deck and i'm not looking at my own deck while i'm shuffling and then i present they cut or shuffle or whatever they're doing when they're handling your deck you have eyes directly on them and then you wait until the round timer starts and start playing your match at the end of the match you are either going to put in your result in the companion app or mtg melee or assign your match slip if they're doing it that way, and then make sure that your match result is received. And I usually like to chit-chat a bit with my opponent after the match if they're up for it. But once that's done and you leave the table, you don't want to stick around that area, just go somewhere else. So that's like my my mental checklist for start, end of a match. Yeah, that sounds good. You'd want to have like no question of someone saying, oh, that person saw that card in their deck or whatnot. What about match results? That's always one that I've I've found confusion in or other players have found confusion in. Yeah, it's not just you. It's it's everybody. This is one of those situations where you want to be you can be congenial. Like you don't have to be you're not a lawyer out here, right? Right. You're not litigating your match results. You played your 3 games or 2 games if you just stomp them and then you in the companion app if I say, "Hey, I won 2-0." and we're playing against each other, I mark that in the companion app. You then see that same thing in your companion app, and you say, yep, that is correct. Okay. And the same thing with match slips. The winner fills out the match slip, signs it, moves it over to the loser, who then looks at it and says, yes, 2-0, that's how this went, and then signs it there. It's really important that you're just aware of how that reporting works and for the love of god especially if you're at a local thing just get your in any situation not even especially if you're at a local thing get your match results put in as quickly as possible as everyone is moving away from match slips you can do that without even leaving the table easy enough just get those in make sure the tournament you're you're doing your part to help the tournament progress smoothly right we know how you feel about timing yeah 
Absolutely. Don't add any more bamboo pieces underneath Anthony's fingernails. Yeah. If my opponent just like doesn't enter a match result or something like that, and the tournament slows down, I'm up at the judge table just being like, hey, I lost. Mm -hmm. Generally speaking, no one's going to question you if you say you lost. um, But a good judge staff should question you if you're like, hey, this match result wasn't submitted, but I won. My opponent, like if, you know, the round timer is up and everyone's waiting on table 18 and their outstanding match result and somebody comes up and is like, I won. They're going to want to check with your opponent. Right. Just make everyone's life easier. Yeah, that makes sense. So what about the player zones? Because I see people play and like for me in Commander, I keep like lands at the bottom and my deck is on my left or my right and my graveyard's under it. But I know there can be some interesting things with tournament play, making sure you don't look like you're cheating or like a card doesn't flip in your graveyard or things like that. But I'm not sure, like, is there a direct expectation of it should go this way or one of two ways? Like, how does that look? So long story short, no. Unless the TO has requested something else, you can kind of arrange your play zones however you'd like. I definitely have my recommendations. And I know that there are certain situations in which, like Star City Games, for example, on their coverage, insist that you keep your graveyard next to your library lands have to be closest to you creatures and other permanents have to be above lands stuff like that i personally like to arrange my board in such a way that it maximizes the amount of information my opponent that my opponent is entitled to that they can get easily i don't like a single pile graveyard one card directly on top of the other behind my library so they have to like ask to see it for me, I just put my graveyard off to the upper left of my playmat and spread it out so that it can be seen. I always like to keep my deck on the right side because I am right-hand dominant, and I find that if you put your deck on the same side as your dominant hand, you get less warnings for knocking cards over. That makes sense. Yeah, I have definitely done that. So Yeah, absolutely. And like, if you're going to spread your graveyard across the top of your playmat or something like that, like... I, if you're like playing dredge, cool. Otherwise, you're being extra. And at this point, the lands on top thing, like the lands up at the top mm-hmm. of the playmat thing, is so old. Really? That's that's like not that's not a thing that really anyone does anymore. It's okay. a callback to a, a different era of Magic where hidden information played a larger role in gameplay than it does now so being able to it was very important to be able to glean what your opponent could do then the only thing i ask is of my opponents is that hey the public stuff needs to be visible without me having to ask for it yeah i do not like it when people like tap their lands and they tap like four lands and put them all one on top of the other yeah so you can see what's on top and not what's underneath well and especially in a format like pioneer where you have lands that have lots of text on them yeah. and an ability you want to activate so like not being able to see that could be detrimental to someone's choices in their gameplay i've heard some discussions on this like putting your creature lands out there and then just like kind of stacking stuff on top of them in my mind if you're doing that to obfuscate a public zone for your opponent you are not angle shooting that is just explicitly cheating yes If your opponent has to ask you multiple times to make it so that public information is publicly visible, in my mind, they should be calling a judge. But generally speaking, if somebody doesn't like the way you lay out your your board, 
they and they say something they're like hey is there any way you can put your graveyard over here i just oblige yeah i don't have any real issues just doing that i mean it's public information anyway if it makes it easier makes things go faster like why wouldn't we <laughs> want to do that yeah i like trying to make it so that as high a percentage as possible of the game's outcome is decided by gameplay which means reducing the amount of times a judge would need to be called by just being clear, by making sure your opponent has access to everything they need to have access to, all that good stuff. Right. Okay. So what about playing at LGS for an FNM or a Pioneer Night versus like the RCQs like y'all have been going to? Mm-hmm. What would be the different expectations there as far as rules to follow, etc. Oh, that's actually really good. Okay, so there are three main levels of rules enforcement in Magic. There is regular rules enforcement level, which is what you would see at an FNM or something like that. There is competitive rules enforcement, which is what you would expect to see at like an RCQ or even the Nerd Rage series, any of those larger tournaments, and those usually come with the expectation that there's going to be a deck list required. You're going to have to submit a deck list. And then there's professional rules enforcement, which is what you'd see at the Pro Tour. Most Magic players, like 99% of Magic players, are going to be playing entirely at comp and regular. And regular is very, very player retention focused. As, as somebody who has judged at regular and comp RELs, I can tell you that regular rules enforcement level is there so that you just make sure that the games of Magic play within the rules of the games of Magic. There's not a whole lot of penalties that you need to worry about or the infractions, things like that are just not super relevant at regular rules enforcement. Most of the time, a judge at regular is just there to repair the board state when something breaks and try and get it back to where they can go pl play Magic as much as possible and do it in a fair way. At competitive rules enforcement level, which, like we said, those are that RCQ level. Think RCQs. For you... anyone newer to Magic, RCQ is regional championship qualifier. Yeah, good point, good point. I've been I... around you and Kyle so long that I just know it, but then I thought, oh, <laughs> we might want to say that again. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good thing. I do love my abbreviations. So at that kind of level, the expectations on the players is a little higher, right? right? Whereas at regular rules enforcement level, basically the only penalty you can get at regular rules enforcement level is a disqualification. Mm. Because you don't ever want to ascribe a penalty at that level. And the only time you need to ascribe a penalty at that level is if their actions are so egregious, they need to be removed from the event. Right. And like asked to leave. Okay. Like that's about where it is. At Comp REL, you can get penalties for tons of stuff, little stuff. I think people that play in their first Comp REL event will get penalties and will be like concerned about it. Don't be. That's the sort of stuff that happens all the time. And the penalties that exist at Comp REL are really there to disincentivize people from taking advantage. Right. Right. We're going to talk more about specific penalties and stuff later, some common penalties you might run into and what they do. But the general play, the general plan for penalties at that level is to, when you're ascribed a penalty, most of the time it doesn't actually directly affect your current game or your current match. It just gets fixed. But if you accrue that same penalty again and again, 
that's when the penalties start increasing. It's like a DUI, but for missing triggers. That that seems like a like a level. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and the the main goal isn't to penalize you too harshly for the first one. Mistakes happen, things like that. But as it repeats, it suggests a level of either carelessness or intentionality. Right. That you want to avoid. You do not want somebody that is doing something illegal in the rules of magic to gain a benefit from that. And escalating penalties are a way that they handle that. And professional rules enforcement level, there is an even higher expectation. The penalties are steeper because at the professional rules enforcement level, the assumption is made that everyone that's there knows all of the rules. So there is more of an assumption of intentionality. If we're playing at the professional REL and you attack with a menace creature and I block, the idea that I just didn't know that this commonly played card in this format has menace at the professional rules enforcement level is correctly viewed with some amount of suspicion. Right. And so penalties are a bit harsher if only because specifically penalties that have a potential for abuse. Things like accidentally looking at extra cards, drawing an extra card, things like that. Well, and to even get into the professional level, you have to start at RCQ level, but you also have to be within a certain bracket of that, right? Is that how you explained it? Like, if you have to be within this certain number of players, which assumes that you've played in one of these a lot. Yes. Outside of perhaps Benton Madsen, awesome dude, everybody that has is playing at that professional rules enforcement level has played an awful, awful lot of magic to get there. And they are very, very familiar with tournament procedure in order to get there. Now, this new era of folks coming in might generate some change because a bunch of them have gotten in through Arena or Magic Online and haven't played a lot of paper tournaments. Okay. So in those situations, that might be adjusted. But as it is right now, the expectation for professional REL is if you make a mistake and you benefit from that mistake, it is looked at very carefully for intentionality. So how about that round timer, though? Mm, I love the round timer. Mm-hmm. I love the round timer so much. Me and that round timer are synced up like the sisterhood of the traveling pants in that I have a I have an internal sense when a game slows down to a pace that is not going to allow three games to be played within 50 minutes. Mm. And how do you respond to that, Anthony? Oh, I'm very specific. I don't think that your new person coming into Tournament Magic is going to be in a spot where they're comfortable to say this right away. But I will say, all right, what's the play to somebody if I that first sense goes off? And then I will say, all right, do we have a decision the next time? And then Boy, after slowly that... slowly getting more menacing. Yeah, I say, I need to ask you to take a game action, please. And then after that, I call a judge. And at the table, I say, I'd like you to watch my opponent for slow play, please. Yeah. And again, this kind of fits into that philosophy I have of I want the matches I play to be decided by gameplay as much as humanly possible. And the round timer is so scary. It is one of the number one things that I hear about when somebody comes in, just knowing that there is a clock ticking, telling you that you are thinking too slow. You're thinking too slow. 
hurry up, do something, do something, and then you have to start over because you're freaking out. Yeah. I'm It's a non-visual medium, no. Ashley. You're nodding. I'm not familiar with that at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is one of those situations where the roundheimer can be a really big source of stress. But it's mm. not. <laughs> I promise the Roundheimer is great. And the Roundheimer makes sure that you get to play all of your matches. And the existence of a Roundheimer makes it so that if you are going to an event and you find out it's a three rounder, you can plan for three hours and you won't be wrong by much in either direction. It's great. So... What would you say to someone, mm -hmm. um, maybe or maybe not like me, <laughs> feels the stress of making those decisions? Because I know, and you've seen me play multiple times, and we've played multiple games together over time. When I'm trying to make decisions about things and I see options, I struggle to make that decision quickly. So, what you got? So, honestly, for me, playing faster could be its own segment. So I'm going to try my best to keep it short because it is something that I genuinely struggled with for years. You did? Oh my God, yes. That's why the Davardi special is known as starting off your tournament going 1-1-1. One, one, one. one win, one loss, one unintentional draw. Uh, well, this is news to me. Yep. I was incredibly, I played incredibly, incredibly slowly. And the reason was is because I was approaching magic arguably the way it was intended to be approached in that there is a an extremely novel situation that you are presented with. This is one that you have never seen before and you may never see again in that how often are you going to be in a situation where you're in standard, let's say your opponent has a bank buster on two. You've got a bank buster on three, you've got a corpse appraiser in play, and you've got a blood tithe harvester in your hand. What do you do here? Oh my god, how am I supposed to parcel? But the thing is, is that these situations aren't actually that novel. They're not that unique. When you see enough cards and you see enough gameplay patterns that you can start sectioning them off into patterns... Mm -hmm you'll find that those decisions are easier to make because you've made them before, right? Okay. So in this example, when you don't try and parse all of that, you look and you say, hey, my opponent has no blockers they can present. I have a corpse appraiser that can attack. I have a bank buster that can attack. I have a blood tithe harvester in my hand that will enter, make a blood and can attack. I just want to get it. And I just want to get in that seven damage. I just go, Harvester crew attack because that's what I'm doing. I'm looking at their bank buster on two and I'm saying they're not presenting a blocker. Even if they activate the bank buster, I can look. And if we then take that situation and replace the blood tithe harvester in my hand with a shieldred okay. play can be exactly the same, right? That's I'm fair. not saying this is shieldred, the whispering one or whatever the new one is called. Where Oh my god, where's Kyle? He's going to be so upset when he hears this. I just lost it too. I literally just saw this card. Oh yeah. my god. Anyway, yeah. we know who we're talking about. She's a 4-5. Yeah. The 4-5. In that situation, the Blood Tithe Harvester and the Shieldred are both in my brain. They're not individual cards for that, for that purpose in that section of the turn. They are cards that can crew this Bank Buster. Yeah. Fable of the Mirror Breaker is not a card that can crew that bank buster. So I don't have to rerun that expensive calculation in my head 
because there's a lot of factors. I don't have to rerun it for every single card in my head. Cards that can crew the bank buster, cards that can't crew the bank buster. And when you start being able to section things off like that, you're able to move quickly. This is why you hear a lot of magic players talk about threaten effects. Okay. Like you'll, you'll hear magic players talk about threaten or they'll talk about, you hear people talk about just grizzly bears, right? And okay. that in and of itself doesn't make you play faster, but that general approach to the game of these effects are all lumped together does make you play faster. Like, I want to think about the one that's currently played in Standard, Bloody Betrayal. I'm not it's even a, familiar with that card. It is a three mana, gain control of something, untap it, it gains haste attack, plus set mechanic. Huh. So it makes a blood. Okay. But Carrie Zev's expertise is a three mana, red sorcery, gain control of target creature, untap it, it gains haste until end of turn. Plus set mechanic, cast something from your hand. So you see how those two cards are basically the same. They have like minor differences, but you can just kind of lump them together and that makes your decision making process faster. So I think that's all I want to go into on just like kind of playing against the round timer and playing faster, trying to improve your play speed, because like, like I said, I really want that to be its own segment. But I think in general... The round timer is your friend. If you are worried about it, make the worst play. Like, make the play that takes you 10 seconds instead of the play that takes you 45 seconds. Because like we talked about right at the top of this segment, there's going to be a lot of mistakes and you want to run into them early and you want to hit them as quickly as possible. But it's scary. Yeah. And that it's just like... so. There's a there's a general attitude that I have, and we talk about it a lot on the podcast, and that is that it's important to focus on getting it right than having been right. And right. I feel like when people take a very, very long time to make plays, a lot of the times they are really focused on not doing something wrong or stupid. That's me. Hi. Okay. <laughs> you don't win games by not being stupid. You win games by making correct plays and no play is never the correct play because I guarantee you if you take 90 seconds and a judge comes over and says you need to make a play, the play you're going to make is going to be worse than it's right. going to be terrible. Like, because then you're under pressure again, mm -hmm. like aside from the pressure you already feel in your head, somebody mm -hmm. else has noticed and then you're like, oh, yeah, OK. You want to move along as quickly as you can as far as like actual getting reps in with it especially if you're worried about that sort of thing. I love Magic Arena for it because that rope keeps you honest. Yeah. And it goes per game action, which is kind of how the judges will interpret your play speed, which so is pretty like, nice. So like from tapping land to choosing the thing that you play to choosing your attacker to choosing your blocker mm -hmm. and whichever thing is relevant at the time. Yeah. I don't especially recommend Magic Online for that because you've got 25 minutes and you can use 20 of those 25 minutes on your first two turns with no real penalty if you wanted to. Wow, that's a way too generous amount of time. Well, if you run out of time in Magic Online, you lose the match. Oh, okay. So personally, I love the MTGO clock because it is a chess clock. If I have priority, my clock is running. If you have priority, your clock is running. And we can see how much more time you're taking to make your plays than I am. <laughs> yeah, that's why you love it. Yeah, and when people play slow, 
and games run long, they just lose the match because of it. Yeah. And in my mind, that's a direct outcome of gameplay deciding it. You were not able, you did not do enough of the gameplay. You spent too much time sitting there. Therefore, you lost the match. But because it doesn't give you turn by turn or even step by step level feedback like Arena does, I recommend Arena for something like that. I can see that. I've played some Arena and watching somehow, somehow the watching the little rope go is not quite as nerve-wracking as people being in the room. Yeah, because there's no person that's, that's Just staring at you. Go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and there's not an Anthony looming over your shoulder or... What are you like, thinking about? Yeah, exactly. Just like that. <laughs> Never heard that before. <laughs> I genuinely want to know. In my mind, when somebody is taking a long time to make a play, I always imagine like a bear on a unicycle in their yeah playing calliope music yeah god bless lsv gifting us that beautiful image oh my okay so another thing that i have only dealt with once and we know how that turned out decklist registration how do we do how how do okay decklist reg is very very simple and here's the thing you and anyone listening have seen your own handwriting mm-hmm I have is lovely you, handwriting. I don't know yes, what you're talking you about. If your handwriting is one that would make your second grade teacher go, type out your deck list for the love of fuck. Yes. If not, you can handwrite your deck list, but also you should probably just type out your deck list. Just everybody should type out your deck list. And the reason for that is usually when you go to one of these events, you'll see a bunch of people like feverishly scribbling in their deck list like two minutes before round one starts. Don't. Don't do that. Offload that work to the night before. And the idea is you will present what your main deck is and declare what your main deck is. Declare what your sideboard is. Write it all out and make sure your name's on it and turn it in. And that way, deck lists are there so that people can't make changes in the middle of the tournament. Like, let's say I'm being really unscrupulous, okay? Mm -hmm. And you and I get paired against each other. And you're playing an aggro deck. Okay, and I'm playing something that has four copies of cut down in the sideboard. If I'm being really unscrupulous and I know what you're playing, I could just jam those four copies of cut down from my sideboard into my main deck and then start game one with four copies of a card that's really good against you in my deck. That would provide me an advantage yeah. that I wouldn't have otherwise. Deck lists exist so that if you see three cut downs in the main deck of my deck and you're just like, I don't know about any of that. You can ask a judge, hey, is this what Anthony's main deck actually looks like? And they can look at a written record and say, no, Anthony, those are not supposed to be in your main deck for game one. Right. They prevent people from, it's just like most magic tournament rules, they prevent people from gaining an unfair advantage by cheating. These are great for that reason. They also have a lot of pitfalls for honest folks that are not cheating. And those pitfalls are things like writing down something incorrectly, listing out your listing that you have three copies of consider instead of four copies of consider, forgetting an entire playset of a card, just not putting it on there. A big one is writing down the wrong card. That would suck. Or, yeah, like they have some creative fixes that they can go with okay but by the letter of the law if 
you're playing in a modern event and you write down two copies of Urborg, there is a Magic the Gathering card named Urborg. It's not legal in the modern format. Oh, yeah. But what they meant was Urborg Tomb of Yawgmoth. Yeah. Just write down what the cards are, what well, they and, say. And to your yeah. point from before, if you do that the night before instead of when you're trying to turn it in, then you minimize those mistakes, right? Absolutely. Yes. So much of that. Like, it's so important just to just just do that the night before. Mm. You have so much stuff that you have to keep going in your head on the day of an event. Why the fuck would you want to say, I can handle that? And some more. I don't know anybody that has that kind of win rate. You can't see me right now, but I am definitely shaking my head no. I don't want to remember all that. No. I'm already going to be nervous enough at the prospect of, like, just playing against other people and trying to make decision paths. I want to put as much of that out of my brain as possible. Yeah. I like to call it front-loading your work. You front-load that work to an earlier chunk of time. It just makes life easier. I think there's a bunch of online decklist registration websites, or you can just have a PDF saved on your computer and type it in. But the main goal of decklist registration is to make sure that you are playing the cards you said you were playing. I had an opponent when I was playing when I was playing Wurza during Hogak summer, and my opponent was on. (laughs) Yeah, I was doing some Urza War of Invention stuff, and my opponent does a bunch of stuff and they're presenting me with lethal so i wait until we're about to go to combat and i get to whir for an ensnaring bridge and make it so their creatures can't attack and then they assassin's trophy my ensnaring bridge and with the assassin's trophy on the stack i say this is game one i say is that card in your main deck and they said yep and i called a judge oh wow because that was very unusual for that card to be in their main deck okay i called a judge And I asked the judge, I said, hey, my opponent cast this card. I don't believe that card is in their main deck. And I mean, if it was good beats, like they decided they were going to pre sideboard for the where's the matchup. Good on them. That's that's an earned victory there. Judge leaves to go grab the deck list. My opponent scoops up all their cards, puts it in their deck box and then walks out the back door. What? Judge comes back, it turns out that they were not even on that deck. They were on a completely different deck. Oh, so why were they... What? Did they just swap they, with they someone? They literally swapped a deck because they thought they had a better matchup. Oh my god. And that's one of those things that literally no part of that could have been prevented if, unless uh, it would have been that. almost impossible to enforce if there wasn't a deck list, a universal agreed upon source of truth. Well, it protects both of you, right? Because it protects mm-hmm. the other person. If they really did make the decision to put their assassin's trophy in there, then they can mm-hmm. say, yep, I wrote it down. And then you just, okay, good good game, you know? Mm-hmm. But if they didn't, there you go. Yeah. You know? And then you find out it's even worse. It's not just that they didn't put that card or that they did put that card in. It's that they just swapped entirely. Yeah. Oh, my God. Actually, this was a terrible example for that purpose because at the end of the day it was something completely objectively terrible right still funny like why did they think they were gonna get away with that it was round eight what it was round eight that we were doing this they had been getting away with that for nearly seven hours oh my god that's that's some next level right there Mm Hmm. okay so 
for slow players like me. <laughs> I generally see a lot of matches and things like that. And I know for me, like, it's hard when there are a lot of people around me talking because I'm already trying to, like, listen to my opponent and do those things. Are there any, like, general expectations of how players should act when active matches are going or, like, how that goes? Because to me, trying to just be courteous in general, I would think that would probably not be okay. But do they generally have rules or? Yeah. As far as this game was designed to be played in LGSs and space was always considered. So there's no rule against, you know, being around a match in progress. And a lot of people, myself included, like to watch matches in progress, especially if they're your friends. Don't talk to players while they're playing. Don't ever talk to them directly. Do not talk out loud about what's going on in the board in a way that they can hear it. Just don't do that. If you want to talk to the person standing next to you about something that's going on in the match, you should do it quietly and like turn or move preferably away from the table. If you're watching your friend play a match, stand on their side of the table, not their opponent's side of the table. If you're playing a match and I'm watching you, what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to stand behind your opponent. Because that creates a situation in which I can see their cards and have a vested interest in you winning the match. Mm -hmm. Not great. Don't want to make it look like you just, you know, hold up two fingers for that means something like there's a predetermined code and, you know, somebody just knows that that's what it is. Yeah, it's like even if you're not doing it, especially if you're not doing it, you don't want there to be any suspicion, suspicion of it. Just stand on their side of the table. That's what you want. You're talking to them when they're done anyway. So you want all their information. And the last thing, if you are watching a match and you have access to any info that the players, either player doesn't have access to, you should not leave the match area. This is never enforced, but it's just a good thing to do. I don't want to be on your side and watch you draw a card and then go, well, game's over and then walk away. I am giving information to your opponent. Or to you in that oh, situation. Oh, I see what you mean. Okay. Now, this is mostly focused on comp REL. I just think anybody that complains about outside assistance at regular REL is a narc. Because, like, what else the fuck are we here to do? Yeah. Some people who are playing in, like, an REL situation, like at a Pioneer Night or Standard at FNM or whatever, like, they're they're still learning this deck, you know? They're, they're still new mm-hmm. to the format or to whatever. But they're playing in such a way that teaches them to play faster in a round timer. So a little bit more flexibility there as far as yeah. you still want to be courteous, but I know it helps me. The main goal of regular rules enforcement level is player retention. Sure. So with that, the only thing that I think I've seen at regular rules enforcement level that I'm just like not happy about from an outside per- assistance perspective, telling somebody else what plays to make and like playing their hand for them i'm just like that's annoying it's slower than if you just played the match yourself and they're not getting any better from doing that right so depending on the situation comes across kind of condescending oh yeah 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 it is 100 percent of the time every time i've seen that happen it's been at like a pre-release and it's been some fedora guy and he's only his, got fedora. Yeah, it's, you know, the fedora type. It's sure the fedora do. type. Plus his clearly unhappy girlfriend that is never going to come back to another event like this ever again. Because of him. Yeah, because of him. Like, like it's it's very, it's very annoying. That's the kind of thing that at regular REL, I'm just like, 
let the, let them play their match. Come on. Mm-hmm. Like, and again, let them play their match. And if they're going to make a mistake, let them make the mistake. Right. We are not, pra- we are doing a children's card game. We're not doing brain surgery here. No one's going to die if you don't play around Fatal Push. <laughs> I mean, your Termagoyf might, but like, no human lives are going to be lost based on the outcomes of these games. This is as, from an evolutionary perspective, as low pressure of a situation as it can get. Talk to my anxiety, Anthony. My anxiety doesn't believe you. Well, tell your anxiety that no one's dying here. This is not, this is a non-crisis. Mm. This is something that I want to make the mistake so that I can not make the mistake in the future. Right. Right. So that went wide from outside assistance questions, but you know, hey, you know, it, useful. It is. It is. It's it's good stuff. So when I'm playing against an opponent, what what sort of things can I talk with them about? Like, what can I ask them? Basically, anything that's not harassment. <laughs> but uh, they don't have to answer you in a lot of the time. A lot of the times, if you can ask them basically whatever you'd like, but they don't always have to answer. If they do answer. They're allowed to lie about anything that's not public information. If you ask them, oh, how many copies of Spell Snare are you playing? They can say four. And as most of the time, I will, if anybody asks me that, I will tell them four. (laughs) Just always four? Yeah. Okay. I've done it in Vintage, too. Yeah. Because I saw saw my uh, Recall two games in a row. Like, how many copies of Recall are you playing? I say four. Oh, are you only allowed to have one? Yeah, it's restricted. (laughs) Yeah, Anthony, your super, super insider knowledge vintage joke is going to land with literally three human beings <laughs> on the planet. Literally talking to a player new to <laughs> certain formats, and you're like, oh, vintage. Hmm. Yeah, why don't you know the vintage restricted list by heart, Ashley? What's going on here? I have failed you. Failed you so well, bad. <laughs> you probably still have lodestone golems. In shops or something. You can't see, listeners can't see me, but I'm blinking real hard. Doing, doing the hard blink. <laughs> so the contents of their hand, the contents of their deck, stuff that's exiled face down, anything that's in a hidden zone, you can lie about whatever. But you're not allowed to lie or even mislead your opponent when you're answering questions about publicly available information, like the contents sure. of the graveyard, the number of cards in your hand, the number of cards in your library. If you have four cards in your hand, and your opponent says, how many cards are in your hand? And you say, two, you are lying about public information. Mm. You are cheating. Yeah. You you will be penalized for that. So in these situations, I like to, in these situations, if my opponent asks me about the contents of my graveyard, I hand my graveyard. Right. If my opponent asks about the contents of my hand, I will spread out my hand so that they can clearly see how many there are. Yeah. Or like we were talking about before, you keep your graveyard visible where they can see it so then mm-hmm. you just cut that time down and then also prevent the time of that question yep but generally speaking you can ask your opponent whatever just know what they're required to answer honestly 99 percent of the time when somebody gives you incorrect information about the number of cards in their deck that's probably not somebody trying to take advantage not everybody can count cards like you yeah i mean you just count you just count the number of cards in the graveyard, number of cards in your hand, number of cards in play. Add those three together and then subtract them from 60. That's how many cards are left in the deck. That's true. That is simple math. That's fair. But if your opponent, if I ask my opponent 
hey, do you have any prized amalgams in your graveyard? And they say no. And then they put a pro and then they trigger a prized amalgam that same turn without adding anything to their graveyard. Very suspicious. Mm. Right? That that is that is the type of thing. Like cards in hand. I don't think most people are getting that wrong unless you're doing like enter the infinite stuff. And then it's the and then it's cards in play, cards in play plus cards in graveyard minus 60 and then plus minus 60 and then plus 1. Okay. Absolute dis, absolute value, right? Because it would be the positive number of that. What a what a narrow and useless example for everyone. The general concept remains the same though. Yeah. You can find that information out yourself as well. Like cards, yeah, cards in hand. Most of the time, I don't expect people are going to be making a lot of mistakes about the number of cards they have in their hand unless they have like 30 cards in their hand or something. Most of the time, I just see people just hold it up. (laughs) They just hold up the hand, fan it out, and they're just like, they say the number, show it to you, and you're like, I, good. Yeah. And it's generally a good idea if you are put in a situation where you're asked a question and if you answer it incorrectly, you can get a penalty. Just try not to verbally answer it if if at all possible. Just try and show them. Yeah, it does make sense. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what about judging? Judging is intimidating to me. The thought of, you know, the person looming over your shoulder that's not you. Yeah. (laughs) How does that generally look or what would I need to call a judge for or things like that we're gonna be living here for a long time but the first thing right off the top judges are your friend if you are playing magic gathering and you are not cheating you are happy that a judge is there Mm -hmm. full stop there's nothing better for making sure the outcome of a match of magic is determined by gameplay than a judge and when something kind of wanders outside of the rules those judges are there to kind of bring it back in in a fair and balanced way. Having a judge around makes things good. I have gotten plenty of warnings because I'll be knocking shit over and <laughs> dropping cards or... You? Never. No, doing all that sort of shit. I've gotten warnings for it. That's fine because at the end of the day, I was not repeatedly trying to resolve my brainstorm and look at four cards instead of three. Yeah. Like, if I accidentally see the fourth card once and I get a warning for it, that does nothing. But if I'm cheating instead and I look at four and I don't get a warning, then the next time I look at four and don't get a warning, and the next time I look at four and don't get a warning, all of a sudden we're pretty far outside of a normal game of magic where everyone's following the same set of rules. And just reinforce to the person sitting there that they can just keep doing that. Mm Mm-hmm. That kind of leads me into when do you call a judge? You call a judge as soon as something happens that is outside of the norm, that is outside of the rules of magic. Mm-hmm. I honestly cannot remember a single time where I've gotten a warning for looking at extra cards or something of the sort where the person who called the judge on me was someone other than me. Mm-hmm. Because I am going to win that match of magic, and mm-hmm. I do not want there to be the appearance that I have cheated or scummed my way into the win. Sure. So the good thing there is that I call the judge on myself immediately and then I'll get a warning. And that warning for looking at extra cards in this example doesn't affect me because I don't get another one. Right. You get like an honest mistake, you get a warning. And then if you 
don't do it again, the tournament ends and that mistake goes away. Nothing follows you past that. Right. Well, and just like knocking your cards over is something that's super easy to do. It doesn't necessarily mean it's being nefarious. If you knock it over three times, then somebody's got to wonder, right? Yeah, exactly. And that's the big thing. If somebody is cheating and they're trying to do something and they get a warning on the first one, knowing that there is going to be a larger penalty waiting for them if they get tagged by it again. Right. Well, even if they're wanting to cheat, they will know that the penalty is higher now and won't. So that's one of those things where... I call a judge for literally any time something goes out of the rules. Sure, can you reach over to your opponent's side of the board and untap the creature they attacked with that was summon sick? Yeah, sure, you can. And at regular rules enforcement level, I will. But at Comp REL, I will call a judge over there and just be like, hey, my my opponent, and I'll even say it, I'll say my opponent accidentally attacked with a creature that has summon sickness. And the judge will say, do you have any other warnings for this today? Mm. and then they can check. So if my opponent has, if I find out then that my opponent has done this two other times today, I'm happy they're getting a match loss because it is very clear to me at that point that they are just doing this often and seeing how many times they get away with it. Yeah, just attempting to get through through and under the radar so that they can get that match win if that damage matters. Yeah, and experienced tournament players, it's your responsibility to call things like this out Mm. when you see it and call a judge for that because that person if they're doing that to you has probably done it to a less experienced player and gotten away with it yeah that makes sense and if they continue to not get any real penalties for it we'll continue to do that thing yeah if you're just like i'm just not paying attention i just did it pay more attention right there will be penalties if you're not well and i can see situations where like for me i'm already paying attention to so much that i might miss something like that because I was looking at my board or I was looking at my hand and then I Mm -hmm. would just miss that so I probably just wouldn't notice to call a judge for whatever reason you know at least at the level I'm at right now I mean I've played enough magic that might not be the case but in tournaments I tend to be a little bit more on edge it's entirely fair yeah and that's one of those things if you are a seasoned veteran it's your responsibility to make sure that the careless or the unscrupulous accrue those warnings as soon as they happen So that if they try it against somebody who's less experienced, there's real stakes for being careless or being a cheater. Yeah. This talk makes it sound like cheating is super rampant at these events. It's not. It doesn't happen. And that's simply because, A, I think most Magic players don't do this. If you are going to go to something like this and cheat, go to something where you will make more money. Yeah. And prize payout isn't in goddamn packs. Right. Go cheat at poker. (laughs) Well, and they have a vested interest in, if we're at an LGS, they have a vested interest in making sure that that LGS does well, right? They want to keep coming back here. They want to keep... They want others, yeah. Yeah. And even at a championship qualifiers, you'd want to... That's still a vested interest in people coming back. Yeah. When it's time to call a judge, what I... I know a lot of people like to go hand straight up in the air and then scream real loud, judge! Which is great if you're in an event hall. That's a good play. But most of the time, you're going to be playing in an LGS. So one of my big things I like to do is I like to raise my right hand, put my left hand on the table, and turn so I'm not screaming in my opponent's face. Mm -hmm. And maybe not shout it, but just in a loud and clear voice say, Judge, can I get a judge over here? And then explain that. So when a judge shows up, you start 
with the reason that you called them over there. Hey, I believe there was a missed trigger at some point and we wanted to check how to resolve it. I'm always pretty deferential to judges. Like, this is why you're here. This is what we want out of this. Right. And then you, as the person who called the judge, explain the steps of the game that led up to the situation. And then you allow your opponent and you close your mouth for this part. You allow your opponent to explain those same steps in their own words. Like maybe let's talk about Blood Tithe Harvester. You play a Blood Tithe Harvester. Okay. And you put a Blood Tithe Harvester into play. You crew a Reckoner Bankbuster. You attack me for four. And then you put a Blood Token into play because the Blood Token was made by the Blood Tithe Harvester. Okay. And let's I'm just saying, I'm just like, hmm, I don't know about that. And I call a judge over. I might say something like, hey, I think we missed the trigger to make a Blood Token from the Blood Tithe Harvester when it entered the battlefield. And then I would say, my opponent played a Blood Tithe Harvester, crewed the Bank Buster, attacked me, I took the damage, and then she put the Blood Token into play. And then you might say, yeah, I played a Blood Tithe Harvester, took my game actions while I was going to get my token, and then when I found the token, I put it into play. Okay. And then the judge would say, okay, in that situation, the judge would say, hey, yeah, that's out of order sequencing, that's fine, just the Blood Token's in play. Nobody made any extra decisions based on the presence or absence of this blood token okay. in that combat. So then you as calling the judge would just confirm that and be like, okay, so we don't need to change anything about the board here. The board as it's seen is accurate. And they say yes. And then the judge will give you a time extension. If they don't say, do we get a time extension for this? And then you resume play. Easy. Easy peasy. Yep. But it's really important that you... Let them know why they're there. Mm -hmm. Explain how you got to that point in game actions. Let your opponent explain how you got to that point in game actions. And then when the judge gives a ruling, confirm that the ruling is correct. Right? Okay. Because let's say your opponent looked at an extra card. Yeah. Okay. And the judge says, okay, just randomize the random parts of the library is their ruling. After you do your explanations and everything, and then your opponent just picks up their entire deck and shuffles it. Mm -hmm. But you know that they've scried something to the bottom. Mm -hmm. So the bottom card of their library is not a random part of the library, and it should not have been shuffled. Yeah. Because you were trying to go really fast there, you've actually created an additional fix that needs to be made to get the game back into a real state. Yeah. Which sucks. So I always like to confirm. Which could, in that sense, be intentional or could be accidental just by yeah. being under pressure. Mm -hmm. And that's just one of those things where you just, just for the sake of things, just confirm what's going on. A lot of the time it's so when they're done fixing things, you say, okay, so we're good to proceed from here. This is all correct. Yes. Okay. Go. Then you continue. I feel like you can sum all of that up with just minimization of miscommunication. Yes. And that's the big thing. The expectation at Comp REL is that you're going to communicate clearly with your opponent what's going on. Mm. As few assumptions as humanly possible. Things like that. There are some pretty common consequences that pop up when you make errors okay. and things like that. One of the most common ones is being late to the table. Most of the time, that's at zero minutes. When As soon as the round timer starts, you are late to your match. Okay. And that results in a game loss. If you are 10 minutes late to your match, you will get a match loss and you'll be dropped from the tournament because they're just going to assume you dipped. Yeah, which is fair. We don't want to be extending and wasting people's time, you know? Mm -hmm. And if you're 10 minutes, if, if you are 10 minutes late, or let's say you're nine minutes late for our match, right? Mm -hmm. You'll get a game loss. I'll get a game win. And we'll go into game two. 
And that's good because you should not be in a situation where if you're playing a very aggressive deck that wins in a few minutes and I'm playing a very slow deck that doesn't, where I then have to win two games in less time because you were late to the match. And that's the guiding principle behind all of the magic tournament rules is that the person who did something wrong doesn't gain an advantage from that thing. Right. And you can always rejoin an event if you've been dropped due to late to the table. It's happened. I've done it. Okay. It's not a huge deal. It will hurt your record, of course, but most TOs or tournament organizers have these times set at zero minutes and 10 minutes, meaning as soon as the round timer starts and 10 minutes after that. Some like to do three and 10, where if, you know, a minute's gone off the clock and you get to the table, there's no real penalty associated with it. You like zero and 10. I'm a big fan of zero and 10. I want to make sure that we are moving along. Looking at extra cards is super common. Maybe you've drawn a, drawn a card and looked at it before it was your turn and your opponent has more stuff to do. Or maybe you did a draw two and accidentally drew three. Or maybe you drew two and then the top card of your deck flipped over. Those are just going to be warnings. We've discussed those in a, as an example. Yeah. Marked cards is not like super common, but it's common enough to mention here. That's usually a warning. That's if your cards from the card backs are distinguishable from one another in some way. What counts so is like, that? So like if your sleeves are unevenly worn, like you have two cards in brand new sleeves and the rest of your deck is in really old ratty sleeves, Yeah, that's a marked card warning. If you're playing a translucent color of sleeve, like it's a really light color like pink and you have a DFC or a double-faced card in that sleeve and you can see the back, Anything that's, that's a marked card. Easily distinguishable. Yeah. And while that's a warning, they will disqualify you from the event if they suspect intent. If I'm playing Living End, for example, and all of my Living Ends in my main deck are in sleeves, and those are the three sleeves that are very different from the rest of them, Yeah, you should absolutely expect intent on that one. That very is very sus. suspicious. Slow play is pretty common, and that's usually just a prompt to play to make a decision, and then a warning. And then a missed trigger is usually a warning. That's a super common one. Triggers are described in the Magic Tournament rules as triggers are invisible and incredibly easy to miss. <laughs> they are incredibly easy to miss. It happens all the time. They will correct the missed trigger if possible and give a warning either way. So what about all of these these terms that we've talked about? We've already identified some, right? Like regional yeah. championship qualifier, RCQ. Yeah. What are short terms that we hear a lot at, at different magic events? Well, you tell me and I'll tell you what they mean. We'll do a rapid fire. Oh, there we go. Okay. ID. That's an intentional draw. So if both players want to have a draw for the match and they don't want to play it out, they can just intentionally draw and then that round is over for those two players. Okay. Winning in. A winning in means that if you win the match, you are into the next round. Usually winning in is referred to when you are in your last match that you have to win before top eight. Top eight? Top eight is the portion where the Swiss rounds end and you start playing single elimination bracket structure to determine the winner of the whole event. Punt. Oh, a punt is when you make a mistake and just like give the game over to your opponent. Splits. Splits or chop, if you're old, is when you agree to prize distribution. Like, let's say you and I are in the finals of an event and it's $200 to second place and $500 to first place. You and I might just agree to split in the finals and just take $350 apiece and call it a day. 
Okay. We're probably going to have to talk about Split separately as its own thing just because it's an absolute minefield. Because if I were to say something like, hey, if you concede to me, I'll give you the difference so that we both make the same amount of money today. I get DQ'd. I get zero dollars. Oh. Yeah. There is, this is, you know, I said, you're not a lawyer. You don't have to litigate this. Well, specifically in regards to splits, you fucking do. Okay. So it's going to need its own segment for sure. Okay. So what about understanding this Swiss pairing structure? Because I assume we are not talking about the kind of cheese we want to pair with our wine. Oh, yeah. Wine is good, though. Wine is so good. Oh, my God. I'm also on a fast right now. Mm. So my stomach literally rumbled the second you mentioned cheese. So that's great. (laughs) You're welcome. Yeah. Swiss pairings are the normal tournament structure for magic events. They are also used by other competitive games like chess as a great way to pair you like a nice aged cheese and a fine wine to an opponent at a similar skill level or at least record level. And this is one of the big, big, big bonuses I find of competitive play or even just like regular rules enforcement level play that you don't really get with kitchen table play. And that's that in kitchen table play, you constantly have to be concerned about a skill disparity or a card disparity. And I think if you were to play in Swiss events where after your round, you are getting paired to someone with a similar record, those skill disparities end up solving themselves a lot of the time, right? So when you are playing Swiss at the end of your match, you've turned in your match slip, you've put it in on the companion app, all that good stuff. The winner gets three match points. The loser gets zero match points. In the case of a draw, each player gets one match point. You will notice that one plus one adds up to not three. (laughs) Yeah, correct. I can do simple math. Sometimes. There we go. So in this situation, a win is going to be worth more than a draw. A draw is worth more than a loss. But in the case of a draw, you and I are not splitting the three points evenly. Right. One of those points that would have gone to one of us just disappears. Disappears, just goes away. So when the next round is paired, the software that's running the Swiss event will attempt to pair you with someone who has the same number of match points as you. So if I'm one and two and you're two and one, two wins, one loss, and I'm one win, two losses, I'm going to have three match points. You're going to have six. This this software is going to try everything it can to not pair us against each other. It's going to try and find another six pointer for you to play against and another three pointer for me to play against. If it can't, if let, let's say, because in Swiss pairings, it really tries to make it so you don't play the same person twice in the Swiss. Okay. It jumps through a million hoops to make that the case. If you can't play against another six-pointer, like there's no other six-pointer it can find that you haven't played against already, it may pair you up or pair you down. And that means that maybe it finds a five-pointer for you to play against. Okay. And a five-pointer would be like they have like one win, two draws or something like that. Yeah. Would it jump down to like even further than that to like a four? Mm-hmm. You, you can like it'll it'll drop down if you're at six. It might pair you with another three pointer. It's possible. But in general, it tries it tries first to make sure it eliminates everybody that you've already played against. And then it says, OK, of those remaining, who has the closest amount of points? 
If you are playing against someone with more match points than you, that's called being paired up. If you are playing against somebody who has fewer match points than you, that's called being paired down. In general, a pair up is almost always good for you okay. because tiebreakers are benefited by your opponent. The better opponents you play against, the better your tiebreakers are is a general good way of looking at it. And a pair down is usually pretty bad. Up would be a Chardonnay and pairing up would be like Malbec. Chardonnay, I'm pretty sure, just tastes like that goddamn liquid collagen drink that you see all over Twitter. Like, it just tastes thick and like, and bovine. Bovine? Yeah, that liquid collagen stuff is just boiled cow knuckle. Oh, yikes. That sounds like a, a wonderful taste. Yeah, that's not, that's not good. Mm -mm. But it's supposed to help your skin or whatever. <laughs> but if you get paired down... In a Swiss tournament, that usually means that A, your breakers are going to get worse because your opponent is performing worse. They have fewer match points, so their results are worse than yours. And B, you might be in a situation where you can ID or what else? What intentionally is that draw. Yeah, you can ID or intentionally draw with an opponent. And you play against somebody who has fewer points than you, and they are not in a situation where they can intentionally draw. This is their winning in, so they have to play with you. And where oh. you were able to just draw in and said all of a sudden, now you can't. Okay. Tournament math. It's, um, it's, it's getting there. Yeah. It's a little confusing at first, but it makes a lot of sense. And thankfully, most of the softwares that, you have, that are used give players access to match points. At the end of Swiss rounds, a top eight is determined by the eight players with the most match points. That's called a clean cut. Okay. If there are eight people with 11 points or better. And if there are exactly eight people with like 11 points or better, right? Okay. So that's a clean cut where the 10 pointer didn't make it. The 11 pointers and up all did. Mm. Nobody gets bumped out based on tiebreakers. What does tiebreakers change? Tiebreakers happen is tiebreakers might happen. Let's say there are nine people that have 11 points or better. Okay. And three of them have exactly 11 points. Well, it's a top eight, not a top nine. So one of those three people at 11 points isn't going to make it. And how do you determine that? Yeah. Tiebreakers and magic events differ from tiebreakers and other Swiss tournaments in, in a few little ways. Mainly, tiebreakers are determined by three things. Your OMW, which is your opponent's match win percentage. Okay. Which is why I said when you are playing against people who are performing well, that helps your tiebreakers. And that's because people that you play against having a higher total match win percentage makes your tiebreakers good. So if you and I both have 11 Swiss points at the end of the Swiss mm -hmm. and my opponents have won all of their matches and everyone you've played against has, has a bunch of people you've played against have done really poorly and dropped. My opponent match win percentage is going to be higher than yours, which means that I will have better tiebreakers. Okay. So if it's on the bubble between you and me in that situation, I make it enjoy ninth place. Rude. Now, if those are tied, if we both have 65% opponent match win percentage, mm -hmm. well, our tiebreakers tied. What's the next tiebreaker? Is there one? Yep. Our individual game win percentage. Hmm. So this is the point where it matters if you won 2-0 or 2-1. Okay. If you're doing well and you're worried about top eight, you've probably won more than half of your games. Sure. Your game win percentage might be 75 and my game win percentage is 70. Well, you win. I get to enjoy ninth place. Okay. And then you make top eight and I don't. Maybe someday. But what if but what if we both 
won 75% of our games. How many total tiebreakers can there be? The next one is opponent game win percentage. Okay. And this is the point where there's enough variance that the likelihood of two people having the same amount of match win, opponent match win, game win percentage, and opponent game win percentage is like basically none. Mm. I have seen it get to this point like probably a total of two times ever. Wow. But it's the same thing, but we just look at our opponents and are our opponents winning more or less. Mm. That's a lot of math. So, yes. But fortunately, if you use the companion app and you look at the standings tab, it will actually just rank people in that order for you. Sweet. Where it matters is kind of in the second to last round when you're deciding, can I intentionally draw or no? Mm. So that's a big thing is those tiebreakers are nice because if you have 11 points and I have 11 points, if you're winning on the first match tiebreaker, even though we have the same match points, you're going to be above me in the standings. And then if we tied on the first one and you beat me on the second one, you're going to be above me in the standings. And the same thing for the third one, right? Okay. It'll do all of that for you. Nice. I like having a computer in my pocket that will think for me. Mm -hmm. It is very nice. Now... Swiss rounds are set up specifically to present you with the fewest number of rounds possible to have a clean cut. That's the goal, right? Yes. So if there are up to eight players, three rounds takes care of everything and it is clean. At nine to 16, you go to four and then up to 32, you go to five and then up to 64, you go to six rounds and up to 128, you go to seven rounds and up to 226, you go to eight and then 409, you go to nine and then 410 players or more, it's 10 rounds and you can kind of go from there. That's a long day. Yes, I think these numbers matter in that 9 to 64 range, in that that's where it's going to be most of the time. You say, do we have, it's 17 to 32 is where most of these local RCQs end up. So you know, do we have 31 players? Okay, it's going to be five rounds. Do we have 33 players? Okay, it's going to be six rounds. That's usually where these things end up. And that's usually the important one to kind of remember. Also, your judge should tell you how many rounds there's going to be before round one starts. The top. Yep. That makes sense. Everyone can know how long they're going to be there. Yep. Get a good idea of what's going on. Decide what type of excuse and or lie they want to say about where they are. <laughs> All that good stuff. All right. So we have got a super fun guessing game today. This one is going to be in, in the spirit of folks trying out tournament magic. We're going to have our guessing game be themed around new things for people. So in this situation, we're going to be talking about the worst card to explain to someone who hasn't seen it before. Ashley, I know you've got one. I've got one. How about you go first? Okay. It is a three mana card. It is currently played in at least one format. Yes, mm -hmm. at least one format. And yeah, I think that's all I want to give you. Go for it. Okay. Is that one format real? Yes. Wait. Oh, I was genuinely expecting a fuck you on that one. <laughs> okay, so a non-commander card. <laughs> okay, you said it was a three mana card. Is this card a creature? Yes. Three mana creature. Is it multicolored? No. Okay. Three mana. Is the format that it's seeing play in Pioneer? Yes. Does this creature have a Magic the Gathering card back? Yes. Like, does it say Magic the Gathering on the back of it? Yes. I thought it was a double-faced card for a second. Ah, oh, hold up. My answer to that is no. No. Okay, okay. I think we're probably talking about Graveyard Trespasser. Correct. Why does that card do so many things? So many. 
And one of them, and- one of them, once the card leaves the battlefield, you still have to pay attention to. It's very yeah, it annoying. it gives you another thing to fucking track forever. Yes. Now. Yeah, I can agree on that one, <laughs> especially if they've not seen that before. Also, it has ward, which was like a set mechanic that you needed to resolve a specific way. And it doesn't have a lot like you have to know what ward does. You have to know what the day night mechanic does. You have to keep track of what its power, its toughness is. And it changes what it does on the back. But the ward cost doesn't change. Right. It's just. When you're already trying to think about so many things in front of you, and then you have to think about this thing, even if this card leaves the battlefield, it just mm-hmm. it gets to be a thing. Yeah. So I always have D10s in my bag, but I don't always have day-night tokens in my bag. Mm. So a lot of the time, I use a D10 to track day-night, and I just do one for day and zero for night. Don't do that. Just bring a token. <laughs> I think we've had this you discussion not... before about too bringing many tokens. People get, yeah, too many people get upset by that, and I'm just like, no, it's... It's either day or night. It's a binary thing for the rest of the game. So why don't we just have it as true or false? One or zero? Ah, not. All right. That's fair enough. You do that on a daily basis. So (laughs) it's the day night mechanic is just Boolean bullshit. And I'm furious about it. Boolean? Yeah. Please say more words. Like Boolean, like the word Boolean. All I can think of is bullion, like chicken bullion. Oh, stop. You, I told you I was fucking fasting. <laughs> a Boolean is a binary variable having two possible values called true and false. Oh. Okay. Well, fun times. Not I'm... to be confused with bouillon. <laughs> Have you been watching Ratatouille again? I mean, not today. One of my favorite things on the history in the history of this planet is the part of everything everywhere all at once. Hmm. Where they went to the Raccoonie universe. Yeah. Where there is a raccoon ratatouille. Uh, it was so good. That movie was just so good. Yeah, that movie was so good. The guy from the Ratatouille movie was named Linguini, right? Yeah. You think that if, like, Linguini's ever fucking and somebody pulls his hair while they're having sex, he just, like, gets up and starts making spaghetti or some shit? I mean, by the rules of the universe they created. Yeah. Listen, I think... I think animated movie universes have some horrific implications. And yes, I understand that I sound like a cracked article from 2014. (laughs) But I do want to point out that also the Holocaust happened in the Cars universe, right? What? Yeah, there was some sort of car Hitler, probably a Volkswagen. I do not remember this connection. I haven't seen Cars in ages. Please explain. I'm just going to Google Cars Holocaust and I'm going to see what happens. Oh, I'm on a watch list now. Okay, okay, okay. Okay, the Cars verse includes a World War II era Jeep named Sarge, who explicitly references the Battle of the Bulge, which means that the Battle of the Bulge occurred, which means that World War II happened, which means that the Holocaust happened. Oh, wow. And in the direct-to-DVD film Planes made by Disney, not Pixar, there's an actual World War II flashback in which a plane skipper recalls losing his entire squadron in the Pacific Theater. Okay. That is a connection I did not make. I didn't I never saw planes, first off. Second, when I watched no cars. No one did. Well, true. When I watched cars, I never made that connection. Why did they do this? Ashley, if you had to cast a specific type of car to play car Ava Brom, what car would it be? I don't know how I feel about this line of discussion. Because I would pick Jamie Lee Curtis, but as like a car. That's not even remotely the same thing. It's not the qu- answer to the question I ask. No. But it's a thing that I wanted to say, so I just did it. Jamie Lee Curtis. 
I don't think Jamie Lee Curtis would play a really good Ava Braum, but I think a car version of Jamie, Jamie Lee Curtis would. And I don't know what I don't know what a car Jamie Lee Curtis would look like. Would be. I don't know enough about cars. Me neither. Yeah, this is You picked the wrong line of discussion for the two of us. What about that movie Up where that old man gets so sad that his wife is dead that he kidnaps a child to the sky? <laughs> I mean, I wanted to like say that you were incorrect but even though he accidentally does it does that matter? like i mean i accidentally tr- kidnapped this child across state lines isn't usually a great excuse really um, but also wasn't the dog like really sad in that movie so i think so like because I... the dog was able to speak yeah the dog was like hanging out with the person that used to be on the island right and then Mm -hmm. it gave him a collar so he could talk i think he was just lonely because he was there by himself right yeah yeah but like it was just like a really weird sad insight into Oh, here we go. Here we go. I found the thing I was looking for. Okay. Oh, no. This is one three spooky five me edgelord fan theory about how the child was actually an angel because Carl's been dead the whole time. Oh. No. Yeah, it's like that weird Rugrats fan theory where Angela's imagining all of the Rugrats. What? Oh, yeah. How? How do people how do people get these lines of thought? I don't understand. How do they come to this conclusion? You can come to some pretty ridiculous conclusions if you just apply like if you just like generously apply film criticism theory schools and theories to different things and just are willing to ignore some stuff. Have I ever given you my thesis on the Lara Croft Tomb Raider series? No. As feminist movie icons? No. Please enlighten me. All right. Me. Well, first of all, it passes the Bechdel test. Okay. Please explain. Oh, the Bechdel is a, a series of questions that you can apply to a film and see if it meets this very, very low bar for sexism and gender stereotyping. And there are three rules that at least two women are featured, that these two women talk to each other at some point, and that the thing that they talk about is something other than a man. Okay. And if all three of those are true then they have passed the Bechdel test. That is a very low bar. That's really a really sad low bar. So many things don't pass this. Yeah, now I'm going to think about this a lot. Yes, but I do think that it's worth noting the fact that in the Lara Croft Tomb Raider series, they, it felt at first like they were just going to do like a gender swap and just code Lara Croft as a male superhero or a male action hero i should say but that's not what happened they did have her do some male coded things but for the most part she was femininely coded but the most important thing was in this action movie there was a damsel in distress and it was not laura croft it was not laura croft they decided to gender swap the roles of bond and the bond girl and i thought it was refreshing and subversive and you know why i thought it was so fucking subversive ashley why is that Because the person, the man they cast to be the Bond girl in that movie was Daniel Craig, literally the actor who played James Bond. 
That's lovely. I didn't he think about played that. played a Bond girl. Bond is also she, a Bond girl. She saved him from that ancient planetarium thing. <laughs> does look like a planetarium. Oh, Lord. All right. I've got a card for you to guess. Okay. <clears throat> Hit me. All right. I'm going to let you know. A, I'm being real mean. Oh, boy. B, this card was specifically printed in Legends and has never been reprinted in paper outside of that. And C, that the card's text as printed on the card is unrecognizable from its Oracle text. And D, that if you wanted to buy a copy of this card, it would cost you $1,200. Oh, is this card a land? No. Hold up. Hmm. Legends only, $1,200, never been printed again. In paper. In paper. In paper is an interesting distinction. It has been reprinted twice on Magic Online. Oh, man. If you wanted to buy it on Magic Online, it would cost you between 40 and 67 cents. Weird. Is it mean because I wouldn't know Legends, or is it mean because the card is simple? It's mean because you would not know Legends. Okay. This card is not remotely simple. No. Is... This card a creature? No. Artifact? Nope. Is it blue? No. I keep going with impressions that I have in my mind of cards that it might be, and it is far off. Nah, you can you can keep going with this line of questioning. This line of questioning is good. It'll help you narrow things down a lot, which you're gonna need to do. Black. Yes. Enchantment. It is an enchantment. I feel like this might be on the tip of my tongue, but I can't think of it. Black Legends Enchantment. So you've got color, card type, set, number of words in the title. Mana cost is also a good one. Does it see commander play? Not from pores, but yes, other than that. What? Chains of Mephistopheles? Mephistopheles. That is correct. It is the Chains of Mephistopheles, also known as Chains of Mephistopheles. Mephistopheles. Oh my god. The text on the card as printed is, Every time a player draws a card, that player must first discard a card from his or her hand. If there are no cards in player's hand, take top card from library and place it in graveyard instead of drawing. This enchantment does not apply to the first card drawn by a player during the draw phase. That is bizarre. Okay. The good news is I have had to explain chains a few times. So the easiest way to explain it is your draw step is your draw step. That's fine. Every draw other than that is a rummage. You discard a card, draw a card instead. Mm. And if you don't have any cards in your hand, whenever you try to draw an extra card, instead you just mill one. Oh, that's weird. Is there... I can kind of see why they wouldn't reprint that anymore. Because it's a fucking nightmare. Yeah, that is a disaster. Mephistopheles, you done fucked us again. Sure did. Nonsense. That'd be a rough one. Well, you were able to guess my ridiculous card. I was able to guess yours. Much more reasonable. So, we talked a lot about the tournament structure, how these sort of things work. Mm. And we're super excited that you are going to be trying to put some of this... Skill to work. To the test. Yes. Yeah, you're going to be trying this out. Yes. You are going to be making your way into, I think we've decided that we're going to be really kind of going forward and pioneer. Yes. And trying to get you into the tournament swing. So we're going to get to see the whole trajectory of you struggling into finding success, into breaking into a more competitive setting and struggling there, and then finding success in that competitive setting as well. Yes, I am excited. 
little bit nervous. <laughs> we decided on the Rakdos deck, which I played recently, and I like it a lot. The deck is great. It's a lot of fun, you know. It's a lot of decisions. Lots of decisions, which is interesting. So, I don't know. My main thing, I'm just going to try to work on making a play. Just just make the play. Okay, yep. I don't have to hear Anthony's cackle in my head about which play I'm making. I can just say, shut up, Anthony, and just make my damn play. So Shut up, mental model of Anthony that exists in my head. Yeah. This is an okay thing. This is how normal people interface with each other. It sure is. It sure is. <laughs> That's absolutely normal. No, but I'm really excited. Me too. I'm really excited to see you to see you hit your stride and just really just start just dunking on people. <laughs> I'm gonna give it my best. Yeah, I think I think you're gonna get there because, and we're gonna discuss this at a later time. But magic is as close to a meritocracy as anyone listening to this is ever gonna experience in their life. Mm. This is one of those things that I think that anyone can become successful in the game if they want to. Yeah, and can dedicate the time and effort to it. I don't think there is any natural ability barrier that exists for this game. And I think that I'm excited. I'm excited to I'm I'm just really looking forward to seeing you just like kind of make these level up moments and break through and things start clicking for you. Me too. Because once that once that starts rolling and you start getting that positive feedback from something besides just pure results. Yeah. That is genuinely just like a high like no other. That is something, and believe me, that is something that I can confirm. Like, it's just such a pleasant thing to be like, to have that moment of realization and just realize that I'm better, even in a small way, at this thing than I was 45 seconds ago. Yeah. And that's just a great spot to be in. So Ashley is going to be coming back in periodically as we kind of do status reports on her progress through this project. And then also coming back through periodically whenever Kyle can't make it <laughs> as a... When he's, you know, out traversing the world. What do you mean? You, you know, like potentially lost in the desert on a hike. What the fuck are you talking about? Since when has Kyle been lost in the desert on a hike? Did you not hear his message at all? Are you fucking serious right now? We have to help him. Yeah. Signing off from Lexington, I'm Kyle. I'm Anthony. And until next week, do us a favor. Stay trashy, my friends. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to like and subscribe. It helps us out a ton and makes it easier for other players like you to hear what we have to say. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon, Stitcher, Spotify, Peanut.fm, and iHeartRadio. One of those was not real, but we'll never tell. It was Peanut, wasn't it? Oh, shut the fuck up.